This podcast is brought to you by Recontract, the leading software to automate your reconditioning process. From vehicles to people to parts, Recontract streamlines every touchpoint in your recon process. Visit recontract.com an to learn more. That's R-E-C-O-N-T-R-A-C dot slash A-N. Welcome to Daily Drive for Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, lots of news at GM. The marketing chief is out. New plans for selling OnStar are in. And union workers in Mexico are getting a big raise. Also, a judge backs Hyundai in a dealership termination case. And the Honda Accord is about to get a new home. Plus, we'll hear from dealer Damon Lester, who says more work needs to be done to make the number of minority-owned dealerships representative of the U.S. car buying market. Our business case is 30% of all new cars and trucks are purchased by a minority, but yet we have 6% representation. So the scales of parity aren't equal, and so that's what we're striving for. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. General Motors Chief Marketing Officer Deborah Wall is leaving the automaker. A GM representative confirmed the news to our sibling publication, Ad Age, saying Wall, quote, elected to retire and will be transitioning through the end of March. GM says it will conduct an external search for a new global CMO. Wall is 60 years old. She joined GM almost exactly five years ago as CMO of its Cadillac brand and was promoted to global GM CMO in 2019. She had previously served as Chief Marketing Officer of McDonald's USA. She has been named to the Automotive News 100 Leading Women in the North American Auto Industry list in 2000, 2005, and 2020. GM will stop building a $1,500 OnStar subscription into the price of all Buick and GMC vehicles. Instead, the Detroit automaker is making the safety and connectivity service standard only on high-end trims, but optional on most other models. For the 2024 model year, three years of OnStar Premium will be included on all GMC Denali trims and Buick Avenir trims, as well as all versions of the GMC Hummer EV. Lower trims instead will come with three years of OnStar Remote Access, which links the vehicle to a mobile app. The change largely reverses a decision by the automaker in mid-2022 to package OnStar Premium with every Buick and GMC vehicle, giving buyers no opportunity to have the $1,500 costs removed. A GM spokeswoman said the switch is meant to pair premium OnStar features with premium vehicle trims. Meanwhile, GM has agreed to hike salaries by 10% this year at its largest factory in Mexico. That's according to the local union on Monday. The deal represents one of the biggest recent raises in the sector in Mexico. The increase affects workers at GM's pickup truck plant in the central city of Silao. It will go into effect for one year as of March 25. The raise tops last year's deal for 8.5% raises. GM said the agreement, quote, will benefit our workers. A federal judge in Florida has ruled that Hyundai Motor America was within its rights to terminate two Napleton Automotive Group dealerships. Hyundai served the dealership's notices of termination because it alleged that its reputation suffered after Napleton executive Edward Napleton Jr. was charged with sexual battery of an employee. Napleton Jr., who was sentenced to five years probation without admitting guilt, 
is the son of company president Ed Napleton. The wrongful termination suit was brought against Hyundai by North Palm Hyundai and West Palm Beach Hyundai, which are both owned by Napleton Automotive Group. The dealerships claim that Hyundai violated Florida law when it tried to end their franchise agreements. Though a final judgment was set, the dealerships will remain operational. They will have 30 days to file an appeal, which is expected. Napleton Automotive Group ranked as number 13 in Automotive News' 2022 list of the top 150 dealership groups based in the U.S. And Honda's U.S. unit says it will move production of the Accord sedan to Indiana in 2025. That's after assembling the model in Marysville, Ohio, for more than 40 years. The move is part of Honda's shift to EV production. Marysville will be Honda's first U.S. plant to transition to making EVs. The move comes after Honda and South Korea's LG Energy Solution announced last fall that they would build a planned $4.4 billion joint venture battery plant at a site near Jeffersonville, Ohio, which broke ground earlier this month. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, interesting movement over at GM. What do you make of all this? Yeah, it's hard to tell if there's any connections. The OnStar decision, in a sense, marketing, I don't have any knowledge whether that's related to Deborah Wall's decision to leave. Her departure is certainly disruptive to the company. And the raises in Mexico, I think, are interesting, especially with talks coming up with the UAW and Unifor this fall. You know, I'm sure the company is going to want to make the case that a 10% raise in Mexico is worth a whole lot less per hour than a 10% raise in the U.S. or Canada. But it definitely sets an interesting note heading into the talks. Gotcha. Coming up, we'll hear about one dealer's mission to increase the number of minority dealers in the U.S., and his own struggle to own a store himself. That's next on Daily Drive. Across the Hendrick Automotive Group, each store had a different reconditioning process. They started looking for a solution that would help them standardize their processes, give them actionable information, and ultimately drive efficiency. Knowing they needed to bring together all pieces of their operation to cut cycle times down to their goal of three days, they chose Recontract. Chris Little, Vice President of Variable Operations, explains why having the tools to measure your recon process gives you what you need to manage it more effectively. Everyone knows speed uh, to the front line uh, equates to more turns, which helps the overall company do better in terms of parts service and inventory bias. And so uh, when you can really take the time to measure and manage that uh, and perfect that, uh, you're going to increase your turns, you're going to increase your gross profit, and you're really just going to increase the amount of used cars you can sell uh, because you're getting them out on the front line. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Before the Great Recession, there were more than 2,200 minority auto dealers in the U.S. After the recession, that number plummeted to fewer than 1,000, mainly due to the bankruptcies of General Motors and Chrysler. Although that number has rebounded a bit, it's still far below pre-recession levels. Damon Lester joined the National Association of Minority Automobile Dealers in 2002 and was president from 2006 to 2022. In that role, he focused on creating opportunities and fighting for minority dealers. In 2021, he became a dealer himself as owner of Nissan of Bowie in Maryland, just three miles from his home. 
He spoke with our own Amy Wilson at the Automotive News Retail Forum, NADA, in Dallas. Let's talk about your journey to becoming a dealer. What made you want to buy a dealership in the first place? Oh, man, that's, that's tough. So I was with the association, with NAMAD, National Association of Minority Automobile Dealers, for uh, 20 years. And um, I had to do a self-assessment, right? Back in, in COVID, we all had the opportunity to sit still. And I had to figure out and look at myself in the mirror and say, is this something I want to do for another 20? And, and it was a tough decision because I've, I've been able to, um, and we've been able to help dealers and help OEMs and help vendors, vendor partners across the board and kind of financial institutions to, to advocate for why minority dealers matter or why this DNI is important. And, but I wanted to see if I could do it for myself. And that was the biggest challenge to see how I can convert me once being an advocate to advocate for myself to, to try to get a store. Once you decided that was the path you wanted to take, how long did it take for you to get there? It took me a long time, Amy, I ain't gonna lie. So <laughs> it took me quite a bit. And, and what, I, what I realize now um, is when you're in an advocacy role, you take the energy of a lot of people. And I was being someone else but still trying. And so I would say for, for everyone, if you, if you have to figure out your own why, and once I was able to figure, figure that part out or figure what my voice is and why I wanted to be a dealer, it made life a lot easier and less stressful for me to articulate that to a manufacturer or to a, a, a field representative when I was expressing my interest. And so that self-assessment definitely helped me figure out who, who I am and who I wanted to be. Um, what year was it that you started looking into that? Oh, man, let's see. The first, this is a, probably a never-told story. We knew the recession was going to hit probably 18 months before. And that was scary because it looked at NAMAD, which was particularly our funding during that time, um, we, how, what that was going to look like. And so I, I looked and kind of dabbled then um, to see if I could, I could go with the entrepreneurial route. But I stayed because I saw what was happening to, to our membership or to our, our respective uh, members and to the industry. And so I put my Superman cape on, and then that's when the whole recession went down. And you know, we, we did a lot of advocacy on Capitol Hill, not necessarily just for all minority dealers, but for dealers in, in general. And so that started back then. Um, I really didn't take it that serious, but I wanted to see if I could do it but I was taking on the role of someone else's viewpoint because I knew how, let's say, how Rick Hendrick runs his store or how, how Van Tile runs their store. But I always use those as, this is how I need to create my own blueprint. You essentially put your goals, your own personal goals on hold for a while because of the situation that you saw brewing in the industry and what you knew your members were gonna be going through. Yeah, because we, we, had, to, we had to make sure in all of the, people and relationships that I've been able to garner throughout the years is that there's a loyalty that, that you have to have if you're passionate about something. You have to be, you know, I was passionate with the individuals that I've met and knowing the families and knowing that whole dynamic. And so we're a family within AMAD and, and within this industry and everyone who we've, able, who we've come in contact with, particularly if you've come to a NAMAD conference, it's like a family reunion. And so you know, those are, those are my family. Those are my cousins, my fathers, my mothers. And, and so I, I really took that to heart to try to make sure that I could help them 
achieve their goals, but also helping the association move the needle as well. So back to you becoming a dealer, how many stores did you try to buy? Man, 15. 15? <laughs> Some of them were open points too. Some of them okay. were open okay. points, but, but again, I was, I, it was, it was, I could advocate for other people, but there was no one to advocate for me. And so that was one of the challenges that the eye-opening things that, you know, I've, I had to figure out, okay, I can pick up the phone and call a CEO to help move the needle for, for a minority um, to get their first opportunity, but who was going to pick up the phone for me? So there's some dealers in this room today that helped, and um, Reverend Jesse Jackson, who's the founder of NAMAD, has helped as well. So, yeah, I mean, you're speaking to, I mean, one of your essential roles um, leading NAMAD is, uh, you know, if there's a talented uh, minority operator out there who's, who's trying to find a, a situation for a store, you know, you could go and essentially lobby an OEM or a lender or that sort of thing and, and vouch for that person. And that, that's a, a pretty um, central role to um, your, your, previous, yeah. um, your previous job that you had. And, yeah, you can't really call, call up a lender and say, that, that, that Damon me. Lester, he's... <laughs> He's a great guy. But it was humbling. Yeah. Because I, mean. I could call the CEO a vendor for everyone else, but I couldn't call the CEO for me. So you mentioned Reverend Jackson. Mm -hmm. um, how did he get involved in, so, uh, in your personal story there? Just, just our advocacy. We're working together with Rainbow Push Automotive um, Retail Group with NAMAD throughout the years. Um, you know, he knew that I was seeking this opportunity to do a buy-sell. Mm -hmm. um, it was just that all of the opportunities that I looked for, they were outside of where I live. So for, for me, where my store is, is three miles from where I live. So all of those opportunities of 15 stores that I tried to look, those opportunities, they just weren't for me. The opportunity that was for me was for where I live. And so that, that definitely helped bridge the gap um, and, and Nissan being the true partner that they have been with us throughout the years of, you know, blessed the, blessed the buy, sell, and, and, and I'm here now. Let's talk a bit about the state of the minority dealer body. It took a hard, hard hit during the Great Recession. The number of minority-owned dealers tumbled, was it by nearly half, I believe? Close to half. And um, it particularly hit black dealers hard. Where, where, are, where is the industry now? Right now, the minority dealer body at the end of 2022 was about a little over 1,300, and that's African-American, Asian, Latino, Native American. Um, Hispanics led the way with a little over 500. Um, then by African-Americans, about 290 or so. Asian, about 280, 290. And then the, the, the remainder is, is Native American. So there's been some year-over-year -year growth. I think that the DNI push over the past couple of years has definitely helped. Um, we want to help hopefully with this environment now with a big consolidation that we're seeing and scaling that a lot of these larger groups are doing that we can still continue to see year over year expansion. But to be clear, we're still well below the number of minority owned dealerships uh, before the Great Recession, correct? Oh yeah, before the recession in 2006, we had over 2,200 dealers. When the recession, post-recession, we were down to close about maybe 990. We're under a thousand, so we saw a, a, a pretty much a significant amount of dealer body annihilated over the stroke of a pen, which the majority was the bankruptcy of GM and Chrysler. And so, 
there's been some grounds that have been made and that are being made and, and that we just need a lot more to come. When you look at data, you know, we, our business case is 30% of all new cars and trucks are purchased by a minority, but yet we have 6% representation. So the scales of parity aren't, aren't equal and so that's what we're striving for. So um, some recovery, but still a long way to go. And what do you think still needs to change? Is, is it about automakers committing to certain numbers, to building formal programs, um, creating dedicated financing options for the talented minority operators out there? What's, what is it going to take? Access, opportunity, and cash. So the access part, right now you're seeing scale, um, which Wall Street is now into the auto industry. We're seeing scale where public entities are buying larger dealer, traditionally multifamily generational dealership groups. And our average dealer body on the minority side is maybe three, three and a half stores. So we need to scale up mm -hmm. to be able to, from a longevity standpoint, compete. The benefit that we have is that, this is fact, we minority dealer body out are more profitable and outperform from a from a volume standpoint than non-minority dealers. So there's a business case that, that shows that financing should be made available, but we have to be creative. Um, we have to figure out ways of, of, um, of partnerships. We have to figure out ways how we can also play in the Wall Street game like other, other groups are. Um, and we also have to hold a lot of accountability to the public companies as they decide to divest, that there should be opportunities for us to try to um, uh, acquire those stores. They too have a social responsibility dealing with Wall Street, that they should also play in this DNI space, um, not from a transactional standpoint, but from an economic parity standpoint. And so I think that's, that's one of the ways that we, we can try to move the needle more. Damon Lester is the owner of Nissan of Bowie in Maryland and former president of the National Association of Minority Automobile Dealers. He spoke with Automotive News retail editor, Amy Wilson. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer, Jake Neer, as well as our own Carly Schaffner, Lindsey Van Hulley, Gail Howe, and Ad Ages EJ Schultz for their help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on retail, manufacturing, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with Kayla Underkoffler of Hacker One, which administers bug bounty programs for several major automakers, paying so-called white hat hackers for exposing cybersecurity weaknesses. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.